in this series of lessons, we've looked at a few of those pillars that do indeed undergird our faith. The concept of God's existence. The idea that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The idea that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. And of course, if it is true that God exists and that Jesus is His Son, and that the Bible is His inspired Word, then the church that is described in the Bible is the church that you and I need to be a part of. And so we have discussed what Scripture says about the church, first by focusing on its nature, composed of individuals, thinking about the various analogies that describe the church in Scripture, helping us to understand what the function of the church is in fulfilling those particular roles. We spent a good bit of time looking at the origin of the church, that which was planned in the mind of God from all of eternity and produced on the first Pentecost following the resurrection of Jesus. And as we continue looking at the church in Scripture this evening, I want us to focus our attention on the identity of the church. Now, I chose a picture of thumbprints for a reason. You have a set of fingerprints that God gave you from your birth, and they are unique. You are the only one that has them. And so when an individual leaves their fingerprints at the scene of the crime, if those fingerprints have been taken in the past, they can be easily identified. The church is identifiable in a similar way. There are qualities or characteristics that help us to be able to identify not a man-made church, but the church that we read about in Scripture, the DNA of the church, if you will. And what I'm suggesting to you this evening is that when we study the church as it is revealed in the New Testament, we find out that that church is not one to be placed alongside other man-made groups, but it is instead the church that belongs to Christ. And so our question is, how can we identify that church that belongs to Christ? Because that's the church that you and I and of course all of those around us, should want to be a part of. Now, a fundamental question to this concept is whether the church is a denomination. And the word denomination, as it is frequently used, has reference to various religious groups. But the term itself actually means a kind or type of thing. Uh, back when we used to be able to go into banks, that tells you where we are in our society right now, you could go in and ask for a certain amount of money. And I remember, and perhaps you do too, the teller in the bank asking this question, in what denominations? Have you ever heard that? Now you know what he or she meant when they ask you that question. What they mean is, what kinds of bills would you like to receive? Do you want $20 bills? Do you want $10 bills? Do you want $5 bills? $1 bills? That's the idea of the term denomination. And so when it is used in a religious sense, it is used in regard to the idea of a type or a kind. Now with that being said, when we study the New Testament, particularly the book of Acts, 
we find out that that language is not allowed when it comes to the Lord's church. And to show that, I'd like to turn our attention to two different passages. Open your Bibles first with me to Acts the 24th chapter. Acts chapter 24. In this text, the Apostle Paul is being tried before the Roman governor Felix. And the Jews who have brought charges against Paul have secured the sources or the help of an orator named Tertullus. And he was going to bring charges against Paul before the Roman governor. And you read about Tertullus's words when he is speaking. In verse 2, beginning, it says, When he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that though you or through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. So he compliments the Roman governor, and he's about to start presenting his case against Paul. And this is what he says in verse 5. For we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now that word sect is very important because it is in all practicality uh, the idea of denomination. It means a set-apart group or part of. It actually comes from the Greek word from which we get the word heresy. And there are various times in the book of Acts specifically. As a matter of fact, out of all the times that, that word is used in the New Testament, Luke uses it six times. He uses it occasionally to talk about the sect of the Sadducees, a branch of the Jews who were Sadducean. He uses it to talk about the sect of the Pharisees, a branch of the Jews who were Pharisees. And then it's used here in Acts chapter 24. Tertullus says Paul was a ringleader of the sect, group set aside, kind, or we might place the word denomination, of whom he refers to as the Nazarenes. Now he goes on and makes his case against Paul, but Paul eventually gets the opportunity to respond. And in verse 14 of the passage, this is how he responds. He says, but this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which were written in the law and in the prophets. When you look at Paul's response, it becomes very clear that he was not willing to allow the language that Tertullus used to try to define the church to be allowed to stand. Tertullus said that Paul was a ringleader in the sect of the Nazarenes. Paul says, according to the way which they call a sect. 
To talk about the Lord's church as it is revealed in the New Testament as if it is just a kind or type of Christianity denigrates the very concept of the church that Jesus died to establish. And you and I need to have a better understanding of the identity of the church as we read about it in Scripture. Now that's not the only time that sort of confrontation takes place in the book of Acts. There's another occasion. Look over at Acts, the 28th chapter in your Bibles. This is after the Apostle Paul has been taken prisoner to the city of Rome. And in Acts chapter 28, beginning in verse 22, individuals approached him. They had heard about him and wanted to know a little bit more about what was going on. And so, verse 22 says, We desire to hear from you what you think, for concerning this sect, we know that it is spoken against everywhere. As far as they were concerned, Christianity was a sect of Judaism that was being spoken against. It was a heresy, if you will, being spoken ill about all throughout the known world at the time. And yet when Paul responds, this is what he says, verse 23. So when they had appointed him a day, many came to him at his lodging, to whom he explained and solemnly testified of the kingdom of God persuading them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning till evening. They wanted him to talk about this sect that he's a part of. What did he talk about? He talks about the kingdom of God. And he spends his time persuading individuals to yield their will to the will of Jesus, the one who was prophesied about in the Old Testament and the one who lived and died for their sins. And so if we ask the question, is the church a denomination? Is it a group that should simply be placed alongside in a linear fashion every other group that's man-made? The answer from the Apostle Paul abundantly is no. They may call it a sect, but it is, in Paul's own words, the way. And that language, of course, refers back to what Jesus said about himself when he referred to himself as the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him, John chapter 14 and verse 6. Now, how do we know this to be the case? How do we know that the church is not just one group to be placed alongside all others? Well, just a few thoughts from Scripture. Number one, because we know that individuals who obey the gospel are added by the Lord to the church. Now, we spent some time in our previous study in this series in Acts, the second chapter. And you see this concept played out on Pentecost in real time. The individuals to whom Peter is preaching hear the gospel message about Jesus the Christ. They are pricked in their hearts, verse 36 tells us, or verse 37 rather tells us, and they want to know what they should do in response to the message that Peter has been presenting to them. And Peter tells them, verse 38, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And as you go on down in the passage, verse 40 says, With many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And verse 41 adds, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. 3,000 souls 
who had responded to the Lord in baptism were added to the apostles, to the group that was preaching upon that occasion. But Luke takes it a step further at the end of the chapter. Verse 47, he says, Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now, a very significant question for us to ask at this juncture is this, to which church were they added? Is it possible for us to fill in a man-made group in an affirmative way? Or would we have to step back closer to Pentecost and say, not to any man-made group. They were added by the Lord to His church. And what I'm suggesting to you this evening is that if it is possible for those folks on Pentecost to be added by the Lord to His church, then if we do what they did, the Lord will likewise add us to that same church. Not to any man-made body, but to the church that belongs to Christ. Now, that accords with what we find as we study throughout the rest of the New Testament. As a matter of fact, we find that the individuals who obeyed the gospel are referred to as Christians. That occurred for the first time in Antioch, Acts the 11th chapter. In that text, we find Barnabas who had gone to seek Saul. Saul had gone back to Tarsus for a period of time. And Barnabas found him and he brings him back to Antioch where the church needed his uh, abilities. And so when he had found him, verse 26 says, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. What is a Christian? A Christian is a follower of Christ. A Christian is the very thing that Paul sought to persuade King Agrippa to become. And Agrippa understood that because at the end of Paul's sermon, he said, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. You're wanting me to be a follower of Christ. You're wanting me to submit my life to Jesus. What are we when we follow Christ? We shouldn't be individuals who wear the names of men or who wear the names of practices, or who wear the names of other religious terms. We should be individuals who wear the name of Christ. Because He is the one who died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And so, in reality, individuals who obey the gospel are members of the church that belongs to Christ. It is the church that Jesus died for. Elders are told in Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 to shepherd the flock of God which he purchased with his own blood. To whom does the church belong? It belongs to God. Why? Because Jesus the Christ died to buy it. And of course, with that being said, you and I have the ability to wear the name of Christ and the evidence shows us that the early Christians did that. Not only did they call themselves individually Christians, but collectively congregations referred to themselves as churches of Christ. They are churches that belonged to Christ. 
And when Romans 16, 16 says, salute one another with a holy kiss, the churches of Christ salute you, it's not just talking about one congregation, it's talking about a plurality of congregations, which in that particular area where Paul was when he wrote the Roman epistle, referred to themselves as churches that belonged to Christ. Now if it was possible for individual churches or congregations in the first century to refer to themselves as churches of Christ, surely the same can be true of us. Not to refer to ourselves as any man-made group or follow any man-made practice, but to simply be the church that we read about in Scripture. And so as we think about the identity of the church, that becomes very significant. Now with that said, if you think for a moment about all of the division that exists in the religious world today, I'd like to ask just a few questions. Should Christianity embrace that kind of division? We know that the Apostle Paul says that we shouldn't. As a matter of fact, look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. One of the chief problems that existed in Corinth when Paul wrote the first letter to the Corinthians was the problem of division. Now, this was a problem in an individual congregational setting. But certainly what is true in an individual congregational setting would also apply in a broader sense. And Paul says in this passage, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name or by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you. Now think for just a moment. If it was the case that in a congregational setting there would be no divisions among the brethren, wouldn't that same principle also apply in a broader setting as well? I don't think that anyone would argue that God is not okay with division in one setting, but He's certainly okay with division on a broader scale. And so if we ask the question, should Christianity embrace division? The answer, obviously, from Scripture is no, because we are to speak the same thing and because there are to be no divisions among us. But let's take it a step farther. Should Christianity accommodate conflicting doctrines? Where one group teaches that baptism, for example, is by sprinkling. And then another group teaches that baptism is by immersion. Should we simply throw our hands up in the air and say, well, you know, we're supposed to get along with one another, and at least we think that baptism is essential, and so whether you do it by sprinkling or by immersion really makes no difference at all. Well, Paul didn't feel that way, certainly. In Galatians chapter 1, he was writing to the Galatians and he was puzzled that some of them were turning away from some of the doctrines that he had taught to them. And so in chapter 1 and verse 6, he says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we've preached to you, let him be accursed. In other words, we are not to accommodate contrasting doctrines. Doctrines that conflict with one another. Jesus told us, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And so rather than just agreeing to disagree and believing in whatever it is that we want to... Christianity is supposed to hold to the truth of the pattern of the New Testament. 
Should Christianity, thirdly, emphasize human tradition? As you well know, there are a lot of groups in our religious world today that place great stock in their traditional practices. But that word tradition can actually be misused, perhaps a step further to say human traditional practices. Well, Paul told the Colossians that whatever you do in word or deed is to be done in the name of, which means by the authority of, our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, everything that we do should be done with a thus saith the Lord. Should Christianity, fourthly, encourage competition rather than cooperation? Well, that seems to be the very thing that exists in a religious world with many competing ideologies, with many competing thoughts. And yet, when you study Scripture, that's not the idea that you get. When Paul was writing to the Corinthians, he did not want them to think that he and Apollos, for example, were in competition with one another. They weren't fighting against each other. They were actually working together. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5, he says, Who then is Paul and who is Apollos but ministers through whom you believed as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Paul was not in competition with Apollos or with Peter or with any other gospel preacher. They were all pulling in the same direction. And yet when we have various religious groups who are teaching various doctrines, you don't have that spirit of cooperation, you have a spirit of competition, which flies in the face of the unity that is advocated in the New Testament. And then, of course, fifthly, should Christianity encourage diversity rather than unity? You already know that the New Testament teaches that that should not be the case that we are to seek to be unified together as we seek to give glory and honor to God. In Philippians, the third chapter, in verse 16, Paul made it very clear when he said, Nevertheless, to the degree that we've already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. The idea of walking by the same rule is the idea of following the same plan. If you follow the same blueprint and you are faithful to that blueprint, you will have the same kind of structure. That's God's intention for us as we seek to be His people. So as we think about the concept of New Testament Christianity and identifying the church that we read about in the Bible, let me conclude this series of lessons in this regard with just a few questions. Is it even within the realm of possibility that you and I today can obey the same gospel message that individuals in the first century obeyed. Is that possible? Well, if you take your Bible and you read about what individuals in the first century did when they obeyed the gospel, it becomes very clear that we can do the same thing. Is it possible for us to hear the Word of God preached as they heard the Word of God preached? It is, isn't it? Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. Is it possible for us to come to believe in the truth of Scripture, in the truth of the identity of Jesus? Is it possible for us to repent of our sins? Can we acknowledge that we've fallen short? 
Can we repent of sin, turning away, turning toward God? Is it possible for us to confess before others that we believe that Jesus is the Christ? Can we, with our own mouths, confess that we believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And is it possible for us, just like the Ethiopian eunuch, to hear the gospel preached and to come to some water and to say, here's water, what hinders me from being baptized? And to be taken down into that water to be immersed or buried with him in baptism into his death, as Romans chapter 6 and verse 3 tells us, and be raised to walk in newness of life. My simple question is this, if we do the same thing they did, If we hear the Word of God preached, if we believe God's Word, by the way, Acts 18.8 says the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. If we hear the Word of God preached, if we believe the Word of God, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is the Christ, after turning away or repenting from our sin, if we are baptized, immersed into the death of Christ, buried with water, and raised to walk in newness of life, to which church will the Lord add us? The point is very simple. If we do the same thing they did, we can be a part of the same body that they were a part of. And so, following the pattern that we see set in the New Testament matters when it comes to gospel obedience. Well, let's go even further. Is it even within the realm of possibility that you and I have the capability of worshiping in the same way that individuals in the first century worshiped. Can we do that? One might stop and say, well, that depends on how they worshiped. Now, we know from various texts that they worshiped on the first day of the week. Can we come together on the first day of the week and worship? And we know from various passages of Scripture that their worship included the observation of the Lord's Supper which was eating of the unleavened bread and drinking of the fruit of the vine. Can we still today eat unleavened bread and drink the fruit of the vine as we remember the death of Jesus until He comes again? Can we do that? We know from other passages of Scripture that they spent time in prayer together, that they gave of their means, that they sang psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with grace in their hearts to the Lord. Can we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with grace in our hearts to the Lord? Can we do that? Can we allow the fruit of our lips to offer our sacrifice of praise to God, as Hebrews chapter 13 teaches us? And can we still today open up our Bibles and study about Jesus who is the Christ. Like Peter preached in Acts chapter 2. Again, if it's even within the realm of possibility for us to do the same things that they did, remembering the Lord's death on the first day of the week, praying together, giving of our means, singing songs of praise to God, preaching Jesus as the Christ. By the way, you see that entire process under consideration beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 all the way through chapter 16. More on that later on in this series. Can we worship the same way that they worship? The answer is yes. Well, if we can obey the same gospel that they obeyed and we can worship the same way they worship, 
Can we organize ourselves in the same manner as the congregations in the first century were organized? Well, how were they organized? You go through the book of Acts, you find that during Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey, they made sure that there were elders in every place. You find a description of the qualifications of elders in Paul's letter to Timothy and in Paul's letter to Titus. Peter also talks about the role and the work of elders in his first epistle. But if we're talking about how first century congregations were organized, perhaps a wonderful snapshot might be the first verse of the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul simply describes what existed in Philippi. He says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the bishops, plural, by the way, and deacons. Is it possible, is it even within the realm of possibility, for local congregations to be ruled by a plurality of men who fill the role of bishops or elders. Is that possible? And is it possible for a congregation to continue to have men who are servants who fill the role of deacons? These questions are very simple. But if we can obey the same gospel that they obeyed, and if we can worship in the exact same way that they worshiped, and if we can organize ourselves in the same way they organized themselves, then our thumbprints match. We're seeking to be the same church that Jesus died to establish, the same church that individuals are added to on the day of Pentecost. And so the question is, can we be members of the church that was established in the first century? And the answer is yes. If we do what they did, if we worship the way they worshiped, if we organize ourselves the way they organize themselves, if we work the way that they worked, we can be the church that we read about in Scripture. Now this church, importantly, is not a sect. Paul would not allow it to be called one, and neither should we. When someone asks you, what are you religiously, you are not a church of Christ. If you have obeyed the gospel, you are a Christian. That's what the first century individuals were who obeyed the, the gospel. That's what we are today as well. I am a Christian. I am a follower of Christ who happens to be a member of the church that Jesus died to establish. The church of Christ. That's the identity of the Lord's church. And our task is to do all things according to the pattern to follow the plan, to speak the same things. If we're not speaking the same thing, there's a problem. It indicates to us that perhaps both of us are speaking things other than what we find in Scripture, but at least one of us is. Because God's plan brings unity, not discord. How thankful we should be for the foundational principle that there is a God and that Jesus is the Son of God, and that the Bible is the Word of God. And as a result of that, we should be all the more diligent in our efforts to be a part of the church that belongs to Christ.
the bride of Christ. I hope that that's what you want to do.